the first of three messages on the theme, the rat race. The rat race. Let us pray together. Blessed God and our Father in heaven, it is so sweet to be reminded that we cannot find satisfaction anywhere else and in anything else apart from our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a truth that often eludes us. This is something that we so easily forget. And because our hearts are inclined many times to material things, we find ourselves chasing after these things. And sometimes to the shipwreck of our faith. So Lord, we pray that as we consider this subject over the next three days, that Lord, you will rebuke us, you will teach us, you will instruct us in the way that we ought to go. That our minds may know with absolute definiteness that there is emptiness in the things that we run after to fill that void which we believe will make us happier once it is filled up with all these things. And help us, our God, that we might define success according to the scriptures, according to your word, and not according to what the world tells us, that truly we may be a people that are content, and a people that are pursuing righteousness and godliness, and the people that are waiting for the appearing of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, with whom we shall spend eternity. And so lead us into your truth this evening, we pray, in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The rat race. What an appropriate theme for the times in which we are living in. And what a timely theme to address something if we leave it to run freely and to have a firm control over our lives. It can only lead us to a disastrous end. When I was told that this was the theme, that I was being asked if I could speak on for this year's Antioch conference, and later on I received the idea and the concept behind the theme, three things immediately came to my mind, uh, not listed in any particular order. Firstly, the 2001 American movie, Rat Race. Secondly, Bob Marley's 1976 hit song. I used to listen to reggae music. Rat Race. And thirdly, the inner and compelling desire in my own heart for the Rat Race syndrome and my constant constant fight and struggle to overcome this syndrome. It's a real struggle. It's a real syndrome. It's a real phenomenon. The movie, The Rat Race, is an American comedy that features six teams of people who are given the task of racing about 900 kilometers from a Las Vegas casino to a train station in Silver City, all the way down in the south, 
in the state of New Mexico. And at this station, there is a storage locker that contains a bag that is filled with money. Two million U.S. dollars. So this team of six was to rush there. And the first one to get to the locker gets the money. So the movie depicts the race for that money and all the adventure and all the fun that they encounter along the way as they race for that locker. Well, the racers make it to New Mexico and they fight to open the locker only to find that it was empty. There was no money. I tried to watch that movie a few years ago. I couldn't finish it, so I just read the reviews about it. Probably I'll get back to it and read it. And then Bob Marley's song, Rat Race, it has this unforgettable line. <laughs> I played it yesterday. <laughs> Rat race. Oh, it's a disgrace to see the human race in a rat race. That's philosophical Bob Marley. The rat race write-up which was sent to me as a guide in preparing for this conference reads as follows. A lab rat running through a maze to find a piece of cheese gives one a pretty clear idea of the meaning behind the term rat race. The world is a constant rat race by society, people, and everything telling us what arriving at the pinnacle of success looks like. The world's idea of rest, of the good life, of making it, and everything in between. It promises so much but delivers so little. It's as if you keep seeing the cheese you are chasing for, and once it gets, it gets close, it eludes you once again. We as Antioch feel both young, adult Christians and non-Christians fall in this trap of the rat race, looking for everything and chasing so many things, yet missing the main point, wasting our lives away and forgetting to realize that without Christ, as our center and all, we will constantly get pulled in the rat race of chasing after the wind, as we are told by Solomon. This theme calls for a solemn call to abandon the lie the world feeds us and to return to our first love who says, cast all your burdens on me because I care for you, one whose yoke is light. We can truly rest in knowing that he offers eternity and it is one that offers true joy and delivers beyond our wildest expectations and imaginations, both in this life and in the life to come. That's the rat race. A competing aggressively with each other to be successful. To get all that we can and amass all that we can amass and pile up. All the material things of this world, visible and invisible. All in the pursuit of happiness, of success, of joy of recognition. That's the race that we are talking about in this year's conference. Does that sound familiar? I know it does. Some of you have been there. Some of you are still there. Some of you have already been zapped into this race 
and you are struggling to get out. Some of you can't wait to get into this race. And you look around you and you see many others that are apparently way ahead of you in this race and, and you can't wait to catch up. And, and it's all worldliness. It's all vanity, a chasing after the wind. There's a desire for success. There's a pursuit for happiness. There's a compelling inclination to make it big in life. This is something similar to what the preacher, the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes deals with. It's an all too familiar story. The author, or the author does not explicitly mention his purpose for writing. But you don't need to go so far in the book. As you look at the content, and as you look at the structure, and as, as you read, yes, there's a bit of confusion in your mind and in your head. What is this man talking about? Who is this man? What is he saying? It's a philosophical book. Reflective philosophy. And so it's, it's, it's something that you, you, you cannot understand on the, on the surface of things. But as you, you read on, he seems to be giving his reflections in response to the situation in which the original recipients found themselves. The recipients had lost their theological bearings and he wants them to come to, back to those bearings, but he does it in a philosophical way. To these people, their God was distant. Their God was so far away as they lived their lives only at the horizontal level, at the secular level. So the preacher, this teacher's purpose was to show these readers the deficiency of their secular worldview. It's believed that Solomon, the king Solomon, is the one who wrote these words. These are the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. He's the man who had known all these things that we are chasing after. He's the man who had experienced all these things. He's the man who had enjoyed all these things. He had reflected upon all these things. And he had come to one conclusion vanity of vanities it's a chasing after the wind and from this perspective he proclaims and, and this is what brackets the contents of the book in, in chapter 1 and verse 2 and all the way to the last chapter and verse 8 it's an inclusion he exclaims oh is vanity. Oh, is vanity. One theologian calls the book of Ecclesiastes a major work of apologetics and a critique of secularism and of secularized religion. And we agree with him. Ecclesiastes exhorts those who are trying and are struggling with the nature of life's meaning and those who are shaped integrally by wanting to get all that this life has to offer for them and they are reaching out to grab that and they are reaching out to grab the other and are struggling because they are pursuing something that leads to emptiness and in their struggle they realize to their disappointment like those actors in the movie Rat Race, that that locker and the duffel bag where they were expecting to find two million US dollars was empty. 
That's the sad realization of those who chase after the wind. God's purposes is for us to pursue genuine wisdom by allowing our thinking, by allowing our worldview to be shaped by a recognition of God as our creator so that we can enjoy God's good gifts and obey God's good laws amidst the enigma, amidst the paradox and the perplexity of God's purposes in this life. The people for whom this book was written were people who had fallen for the secular worldview and the people who had fallen for the secular definition of success and a good life. Do we not fall into that category ourselves today? Have we not fallen for the secular definition of a good life? These are people who had fallen for the syndrome of grab what you can and have it for yourself and enjoy it for yourself so that you become somebody. It's, it's the inclination, it's the desire, the compelling desire to be somebody. And, 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 and just, just look at the everyday events of our lives. Where it's all about the desire to be somebody. It's all about the zimia mentality. Silence the mentality. And so our weddings are planned to be unique, spectacular, expensive. Riding in a vehicle that all the previous weddings have not used before, so you want to be the trendsetter. Horses, limousines, Bugatti, name them. Oh, we are thinking of 500 guests. Ugly COVID, yeah, it's, it's 500 guests. Now there is the Kenneth Kaunda wing at Mulungush International Conference Center. Ah, and so there are people who are thinking to themselves, I should be the first one to have a wedding reception there. For what reason? Rat race. Rat race. This syndrome has been with us since the fall of man. That's not what God made us for. That's not what God designed us for. But from the time of the fall of Adam and Eve, this is the race that it seems we are born to run. Unless we are born to run away from it. John Bloom says, Satan broke into the server room of man's innocence. And with perfect skill and malice, he hacked into the human operating system of our first parents with these words, If you eat the fruit, then you will acquire God's wisdom and become like God. You will become like God. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. And since that time, Satan pursues destruction. Our destruction. The destruction of you and me by offering us a false gospel which markets as the path to true happiness. Satan sowed the lie to our first parents, Adam and Eve, and he does the same to us, that we should not be content with just being the image bearers of God. We must not be content by being made in the likeness of God. No, we can do better. We can be God. We can be 
like him. We can be equal with God. That's the language that is always presenting before us. You can reach for the skies and be happy and be content. And just a few generations after Adam, we see the mindset exploding at the Tower of Babel. Let us build us a city. And let us build a tower whose top reaches the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. And you know what God did before they could succeed in that self-centered mega project of theirs in judgment he scattered them he had given them the instruction be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth but they head eastwards they don't want to be scattered they want to be in one place and congregate together in one place. And in the scriptures, whenever you read of people going to the east, then you know that they are up to no good. So many bad things from the east. There's only one good thing from the east. That's my wife. <laughs> so every time you go east, there's nothing good for you. And so that's, that's where we see this self-centeredness, this self-aggrandizement, this self-promotion. Let's make a name for ourselves. It's still alive in you and me. And from time to, now, to time, it, it rears its ugly head and, 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 and said and says to you, come on, go, go, go for it, reach for it. What are you waiting for? And that's how our operating systems have been hacked into. That's how our nature has been corrupted by the fall, turning our lives into this rat race. Chasing for the cheese which we cannot reach. This is the endless cycle of fallen humanity. A tragic, disastrous and destructive race to personal ruin. What might profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Soul. Weigh the two on the scale, the whole world, and all that it promises, and your soul, an eternal soul that never dies and will never perish. When you put the two on the scales, which one will tilt the other? But Satan wants us to believe that the world is of far greater worth. And all that it gives us is of far greater worth than the soul. Jesus says, no. It profits you nothing. Because your eternal soul is priceless. That's why there was nothing, nothing else that could redeem your soul than the death of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Many since Babel have been trying to make a name for themselves. I've been trying to live for themselves. I've been trying to find meaning in life and significance in life and value in life, harboring selfish ambition and living for what the Apostle Paul terms in Philippians 2 as vain glory. Vain glory. 
There are three phrases that are so prominent in the book of Ecclesiastes. Three phrases that stand out. The first one appears 28 times. It's the phrase, under the sun. Life under the sun. Life that is lived according to the worldview that is earthly, the mindset of earthlings. The second word is the word for success. It's a buzzword that is coined to express aspirations, to take advantage of the new opportunities, to pursue economic and social success, and in the pursuit of personal happiness, something which, according to the foreign worldview, seemed obtainable without observance of the law of God. That's the world's understanding and the world's definition of success. And the preacher carries out a thorough sage for success through human effort. And in the process, his inquiry demonstrates that the success which his target audience seeks without the Jewish God is unobtainable and it's empty. The third phrase that is prominent in the book of Ecclesiastes is vanity. Vanity. Hevel is the Hebrew word. It occurs 73 times in the Hebrew Bible, 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes alone. It's also the name that was given to the first man to be murdered on the earth, Abel. In Genesis chapter two and verse chapter four, verse two, that's the name that was given to the second son that was born to Adam and Eve, where it implies how life is transient, vulnerable, ephemeral, weak. In the face of sin. In reality, this word normally refers to a mirage, an illusion. Warm air, as one writer says, briefly visible as water molecules contained in, a, in it condense when it cools. A larger body of warm air, such as mist, can remain visible for a longer time. It's a visual metaphor. And mist appears to be more substantial than it is. But it, is soon, it soon disappears because it's transient. And it hides objects behind it, obscuring reality from view. Giving an appearance of an illusion. And all of these aspects of mist are especially prominent in a metaphorical use of the word. Its usage is described as an optical phenomenon, a mirage. The Oxford English Dictionary defines a mirage as an optical illusion caused by atmospheric conditions through the refraction of light in, in hot air. Giving the following example. The false appearance of a distant sheet of water in a desert. Figuratively, the word mirage can also mean an illusion, a fantasy. And the majority of the occurrences of the word veil in the Old Testament carry the meaning mirage. 
referring either to, for, uh, to an optical illusion or an illusion in general. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, all occurrences of the word refer to an illusion. So you, you begin then to understand what the writer is talking about when he tells us that all these things that the worldly mindset pursues and all these things that the worldly mindset gathers to itself and all these things that the worldly mindset reaches out for are at their worst simply an illusion. They'll be there for a season but they'll so quickly fade away, pass away. They promise so much that they offer so little. It's like a man who is lost in the desert. And sees in a far distance what appears like a pool of water. And all the little strength that he has left in him, he expends it as he trots, as he runs for what he believes is a lifesaver. Water in the desert. Only to discover that it was an illusion. Have you sometimes driven on a stretch, straight stretch of the tarred road and in the far distance it does appear like there's a river. But you drive and drive, you're not getting any closer to the river. It's, a, it's an illusion. It's a mirage. And the preacher the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes is telling us this is what you need to understand. There is this mindset. There is this worldview out there. There is this catchphrase under the sun. There is success. There is Vanity or mirage revealing the purpose of the preacher's entire speech, namely to motivate his contemporaries to warn us that we must remain faithful to our God and never to buy in to the world's definition of what success is. Never to buy into the traditional values of a world that is lost. And never to listen to the whispers of Satan who says, it's not enough for you to be created in the image of God. You can be like him. You can be like God. Reach out for the apple. Reach, reach out for the fruit. Take, eat it. And your eyes will be opened. You will be like God. And like Eve, many have listened and they have taken that fruit. They have taken a bite of that fruit. And they have come to realize that it's all vanity. You can never be like God. You will remain a creature that has been created in the image of God. 
to serve him, to love him, to be devoted to him, and to allow nothing else and no one else to intrude into that relationship that is exclusively his and for you and you for him. Nothing must be allowed to intrude because that would be idolatry and modern idolatry is found in the rat race. That's where it is. And so, as, as, as we try to understand what the preacher, the teacher is saying to us in the book of Ecclesiastes, it makes it very clear that all of us at, a, at the philosophical level uh, collectively are searching for wisdom. We all are, and, 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 and that's, that's what he says in uh, verse 12 to 18 of chapter 1. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Oh, Solomon, what are, what, what are you saying to us? What, what are you saying to us? We're saying I'm on, a, I'm on a quest. I'm in pursuit of something. I'm a seeker. And I'm, I'm on a personal search for wisdom. I'm on a personal search for, for knowledge. He's asking the ultimate questions. He wants to know the meaning of life. He wants to understand the meaning of success. What is it that brings worth to me? That is, what is it that defines me? His quest is sincere. When he says, I applied my heart... He means that the pursuit of knowledge came from the very core of his being. He's focused his mind and he has disciplined his heart to know the truth, to acquire this wisdom. And then he also tells us that this quest was comprehensive. And that is captured in the words to seek and to search out. To seek and to search out. It is something that is, is, is given his whole to do. Showing to us his diligence. He wants to understand life. Not just one part of life. But life taken as a whole. His quest is an extensive and comprehensive one. It is intensive. He wants to investigate every area of human endeavor. All that is done under the sun. That's what he wants. It's a commendable quest, isn't it? Who doesn't want to acquire wisdom? Who doesn't want to acquire knowledge? Who doesn't want to grow in the truth? And so he uses wisdom to find meaning for life. As a wisdom writer, he viewed wisdom as the highest virtue. And rather than living for lower pleasures, he pursued the life of the mind. But the kind of wisdom the preacher had in mind was not the Hebrew word for wisdom. Here, what he refers to was human beings learning about the world without any special revelation from God. That's what he's referring to. Being in pursuit of understanding, being in pursuit of knowledge with no reference to the revealed word of God. 
And he says, seeking such wisdom is a pursuit in futility. Yes, there would be truth elsewhere apart from the revealed word of God because God is ultimately the source of truth. Even in false religion, there would be statements that would be true. But ultimately, what rests all the questions? The ultimate if I may use a big word, epistemological quest. And the answers to that quest are the answers that are going to be derived from the scriptures and the scriptures alone. Well, we, we are not saying that we must never desire to go for further studies. That's not what I'm saying. We are not saying that if you enroll for another degree higher than the one that you have, then it is wrong and sinful and worldly. What is wrong is your motive for doing so. There are people who say, Ah, Tase, my master's offer is full so. I have to get a PhD so that all these Wangwere, they remain behind. Now that's, 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 that's the rat race. You, you, you do not pursue studies because you want to outdo everyone else. You want to beat everyone else. That's not the kind of wisdom. That's not the pursuit of knowledge that, 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 that glorifies God. That's not the, the pursuit for, for knowledge that honors God. A truly humbling knowledge is the knowledge that reminds you that you are a creature made out of the dust of the earth. And that in spite of all your accomplishments in this world, you will remain a creature taken out of the dust of the earth. And that is why when we go to the cemetery, we often hear those words. Dust we are, and to dust we must return. And people may eulogize you. And they may talk of the litany of qualifications that you had. But once you are lowered six feet into the ground... What is the equivalent in meters? We always spoke to speak about six feet. Well, we were colonized by the British. So that system of the imperial measurements remained with that. You are lowered into the grave. And what good are those qualifications for you in the grave? They are of no good, of no use. And when you stand at the pier gates, proverbially speaking, and, uh, and, and Peter is the one that you find there and says, well, why, why, why should I allow you into heaven? You are not going to talk about that litany of qualifications. The answer and the basis for our entry into heaven is did we know the Lord Jesus Christ, the soul's fullest satisfaction. So in the pursuit of all these things, what is it that the preacher, the teacher discovered? What did he discover? Well, look at verse 13, this, look at 14 to 15. 
I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and the striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said earlier on that, that Satan has hacked into our spiritual system and has corrupted everything, has infected us with a virus. And that virus of self-promotion, selfishness, and and self-elevation, that virus that spins us into this cycle, endless cycle of the rat race, can only be dealt with by the grace of God. Because what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Because it requires God's grace to break us free and loose from this rat race. I said in my heart, verse 16, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And if we know, we know anything about Solomon, then we know when he speaks of the wisdom that he had acquired and the knowledge that he had acquired, that it's the knowledge and wisdom that surpasses anyone else apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And I applied my heart to, to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. If it is a striving after wind. Why is it so attractive? Why is the rat race so attractive? Why do we find ourselves in its firm grip? We, we, we sometimes do not even want to struggle to to stay free of it and loosen from it. We, we love it. It's because of our fallen nature. We often forget that that's, that's, that's the pride that brought the devil down from heaven to earth. It's, it's the, the mindset of pride to, to want to usurp the place of God, the glory that is due to God alone. And it's something that God kept warning through Moses, warning the children of Israel that once they settle in the promised land and, and, and they begin to till the land and, and the land produces so much and, and, and whatever they plant and there is bountiful in terms of the harvest, they, they should not sit back and say to themselves, it's my hands, it's my wisdom, it's my strength that has brought me all this wealth. They were exhorted to remember God. The very thing that Satan does not want you to remember. He does not want you to have that before your mind. He does not want you to have that gripping your heart. He doesn't. And so it turns out to be this rat rests. So the wise man tells us that this is very depressing. It only leads to unhappiness. It only leads to vexation in verse 18. It only increases sorrow. Why? Because God is absent. 
is out of the picture altogether. It's, it's pushing, pushing yourself and, 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 and you are competing with God and elbowing God out of the way as, as you are racing for the finishing line and, and, and God is pulling you back. That's not the way. The race course is elsewhere. You are in the wrong path. You are in the wrong course. You insist that that's what I want. There's something glittering there. The rest, the course that you are pointing to me has got nothing for me to see and reach out for. And so we elbow him out of our way. And that's, that's, that's ridiculous. That's, that's so sad. You understand why we have this book in the Bible. It is to bring our feet down to earth. Because with the little that in the providence of God and in the kindness and grace of God that we begin to have, we want to float in mid-air. And God wants to bring us down. Put your feet on the ground. Because life is not to be lived to the exclusion of God. We need him. In everything that we do, we need him. I do not have the time to go into chapter 2. God willing, we will start from there tomorrow. But you see, having such a mindset that defines success only in material things and defining it in comparison to the next person and always looking over your shoulder to see what he has and if he has what you do not have, you want to make sure that what you get is far more than what he has. And not only do you do so, but you want him to know that what I have is not what you have, and what I have is even far more expensive than what you have. The mindset of he who has the most toys wins. That's the mindset of that rich man. Hard-working man. Very industrious man. Very wise man. It's the kind of person that you would want to have in the corporate world. Is the kind of man that would write for you a very powerful strategic plan for the next five years. He worked hard because he planned well. And the providence of God gives him such a bountiful harvest. He has harvested all his crops. Now he steps back and says, oh, this is, this is great. I have so much. What is it that I'm going to do? I'll tear down these bands. Build bigger ones. Store my grain in there. And I'll sit back and relax. Drink and be merry. Because the future has been secured for you. What is it that I would want to have which I cannot afford? With all this that I have and all that I will earn from the selling of all that I have, what is it that I cannot afford? And it was because of those personal pronouns to the exclusion of God 
that God came down that very night and spoke to him, you fool. You fool. This very day, this life will be taken away from you. And so once we ignore that reality of who has our lives in his hands, that's how we end up, like this rich fool. Who's probably much more hardworking than many of us, and than many of us put together. But what was his problem? It's to define success to the exclusion of God. Because once we do so, we are chasing after the wind. We are not grasping anything tangible. It's a chasing after the wind. It's vanity of vanities. It is meaningless. It's empty. What brings meaning to life is the presence of God in our worldview. But much more, it's our relationship with this God where we've come with humility and acknowledge our creatureliness, our smallness, and his greatness, his majesty, his magnificence, his wisdom. And only that will lower us down. And to begin to see things from a totally different perspective. To begin to see things with the greed and with the lenses of scripture. To build a biblical world view. And that's what the ACU is all about. In case you are still fighting with your daughter and your son, whether you should, she should or he should go to ACU, that is what we are all about. It's a biblical world view that places God at the very center of everything that we do. That looks at success not from the, the worldly mindset, but looks at success with the lenses of the Bible. And leaving a lasting legacy in this world where we are simply pilgrims. And pilgrims who know that there is an eternal reward for us in heaven, that this reward is not earthly. If we enjoy anything on this earth, it is out of God's own good pleasure. It is not our entitlement and our pursuit and our only reason for living. So dear young people, even as, as, as you head out to college, as you head out to university, as you graduate from university and you find yourself employed in this institution, in this bank, in this government, or quasi-government institution, you are not there to join the rat race. You are there to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Many who have gone there to Zemia with the mentality that I must outdo everyone else and you aggressively fight your way to get to the top. Many have made a shipwreck of their faith. Many have done so. May you not be numbered among those who have done so. May you cut a straight course building upon the firm foundation of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and following in his footsteps that the way to glory is the humble way, the self-defacing way, and placing ourselves at the disposal of the God who has made us in his image, that we might live for him. Now, today, tomorrow, so that we can enjoy him 
in everlasting happiness. In his glorious presence in heaven. That is our goal. That is what God has called us for. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for who you are. And we pray that we might be a people that are growing in the knowledge of you and who are fully satisfied in nothing else but in the living God and in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. May you put to death in us this chasing after the wind, this reaching out for that which is an illusion. May we search for that which is truly life and life in its abundance that is only found in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.